like to direct your attention this morning to this passage that's probably familiar to most of us from John chapter 13. It happens during the last week of the Lord's life, the evening before his crucifixion. Appropriate text for this morning. Appreciate Patrick's reading that. So, if I said to you this morning, Jesus wants you to be happy, what would you think about that statement? Some of you might say, well, yeah, of course, Jesus wants everybody to be happy. That's what God does. He likes people to be happy. Of course. Now, some of you might say, well, yeah, not so fast. I'm not so sure. I think God's more interested in our obedience, and we all know that happiness is sort of the caboose on the end of the train of our duty. We obey. Happiness typically follows. Perhaps. Some of you might say, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Of course Jesus wants us to be happy, It's only natural to pursue happiness. That's how God made us. In fact, God made everybody that way. We all pursue happiness. You don't have to be a citizen of the United States to not pursue happiness. Now, depending on the caveat here is that true happiness is only found in certain places. It depends on where we seek it. So I think this last response is closest to what the Bible teaches and it's closest to our experience. So think about this with me. People always pursue what they think will bring them happiness. That's just a rule of life. It's a rule of thumb. Mark it down. So some people pursue power. They're ambitious. And so they think that if they become CEO or vice president or president of the United States, that that will finally be the pinnacle of achievement, what they were looking for, then they'll be happy with life. For others, it's not power, it's money. And they think, if I just have enough money to be secure and plan for the future, or to enjoy the finer things, or maybe just enough to like not be full of anxiety all the time, then I could be truly happy and relaxed, and life would be good. So some people pursue happiness in power or money. Others pursue happiness in pleasure or comfort or security or relationships. But all of us seek those things which we believe will tend toward our own happiness. But the problem is that pursuing happiness in any of these things is ultimately disappointing. You see, you may want things, a house full of nice things, but the trade-off is is you get them, but you also get a mountain of debt, and then you're not happy either. Or you pursue pleasure, and you find it, and then you're hungry for more, always. Or you desire happiness in the happiness of your children, or your spouse, or in your church family. And the more you lean in, what do you discover? Faults, flaws, weaknesses, unhappiness doesn't deliver, does it? Someone has written, happiness is tricky, but it's actually hidden in plain sight. Now, it is tricky. I mean, you go on Amazon and you search for happiness or pursuit of happiness and you will find books aplenty. 
famous book written in the last few years by Gretchen Rubin, The Happiness Project. And there's The Happiness Project at home. I mean, there's lots of ink that has been spilt in pursuit of happiness. But this morning, Jesus tells us exactly where we can find it. If we go to the last verse that was read in John 13, here's what Jesus says. Let's look at it together. He says, if you know these things, blessed, or the word is happy, happy are you if you do them. If you imitate Jesus, you'll find happiness. We find out that whatever Jesus did, the book of Hebrews later in the New Testament says that he did these things because of the joy, because of the happiness that was set before him. He did what he did and he found happiness. And he says, if you do what I did, you will find lasting happiness as well. So to find out where we can find this happiness, where we can find what Jesus said, I want to try to ask and then answer three questions about Jesus' example that we're going to look at. The first question is, why? Why should we imitate Jesus' example? So, I mean, it's true, right? For us, we get into difficult situations. We make a poor decision, we realize later, and we get into a bad job or a poor relationship or a difficult situation, and what do we think? We think, if I had only known before what I know now, I would have made a different decision. Hindsight's always 2020. You may have misjudged your own abilities. You may have misjudged the circumstances that you thought were going to end well. But what if you had crystal clear insight? What if foresight was 2020? All that would help in the pursuit of happiness, would it not? And Jesus here provides that maximum clarity. So no matter what you think about Jesus, most people in the world, whether they're Christian or not, would say, yeah, I mean, people who are good examples, I'll listen to what they have to say. I'll listen to Mother Teresa. I'll listen to Billy Graham. And uh, I'll listen to Jesus. Yeah, we would do well to pay attention to the greatest example who's ever lived, the perfect example. His advice is worth our listening to. And this passage shows us why. Why we should pursue happiness where Jesus tells us to find it. Let's look at the first three verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, and we're going to stop there. So this all precedes whatever he's about to do. And we find that here that Jesus is the ultimate and reliable guide to finding happiness. Here's why. First of all, Jesus had maximum clarity about his identity. He knew who he was. Now, we often think that if we really know ourselves, our strengths, our personality, our weakness, our bent, if we know these things, then we can understand the right mate, the right job, the right scenario, and then we'll make a good decision. And those assessments are fine. But Jesus knew exactly who he was. 
He was God's son, the Messiah. The passage says he knew that he came from God and was going back to God. He knew his identity and he found happiness. And if we take his counsel, then we can too. We can benefit from that insight. Secondly, Jesus had maximum clarity about his mission. We might think Jesus said that he was going to find happiness, but we all know what happened the next day. He died. But actually, there's more to the story, isn't there? Because it says, when he knew that his hour had come. What's that hour? What do we mean hour? Well, in the gospel according to John, whenever he uses the word hour, he's referring to the hour of his death. You see, Jesus' death was not the unforeseen end of his ministry, his mission on earth. It was the long-planned culmination and achievement of that plan. And so when he says, do what I do, and you'll find true and lasting happiness, we should listen because he knew who he was and he knew exactly why God had put him on planet earth. Thirdly, Jesus had maximum clarity about his abilities. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. That means that Jesus knew that at that moment, he had all the authority and power of God himself at his disposal. And what Jesus chose to do at that moment is very instructive for us. Why? Because at that moment, he did not in a blazing flash of divine might, destroy Satan. Because that would have been a very steep hill to climb on our way to happiness. Instead, what we find is that Jesus did something comparatively simple. He says, you imitate the simple thing that I did and you will find happiness. Now, we might be tempted to think it's easy for Jesus to say that. I mean, he's Jesus. He's God's son. We found out he's got all authority. Easy for him to say, follow me, my example, and you'll find happiness. But there's more, because Jesus also had maximum clarity about the obstacles he was facing. The passage says in verse 2 that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus to death. Jesus knew that he was facing the end of his life. That his moments were few, his death was looming, and Satan was going to do his worst. And so what we get from Jesus at this moment is not a naive unrealistic set of advice. He well knew exactly what he was facing and still said, follow my example and you'll find happiness. He was not out of touch with the rough and tumble that we find in our world. And we should listen to his advice. He says, find happiness by imitating what I'm doing. And we should listen because he had maximum clarity about all these things. It's worth listening to. So we've asked the why question. Why should we listen? I think we've got compelling reason to perk up and listen to exactly what Jesus said we should do to find happiness. So then we're going to move now, not to the why question, but to the what. 
Finally, we get there. What example did Jesus set that he says if we follow, we find happiness? What should we learn from Jesus' example? Let's go back to the text, John 13, 4 and 5. Having maximum clarity about all these things, verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's what he did. What we learn here, first of all, is that identity of Jesus, he totally transformed the expectations about his identity. We learn later in the text, he says, you call me your master and your teacher, and you're right because I am. Jesus was the master and teacher. He was God's own son. And he stopped and he stooped to do the job that no one else was willing to do. He washed feet. So the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day, they knew about foot washing. It was a common practice. And they said, this job is so low, it's so beneath people to do, that we're not, it's against our rules for a Jewish slave to wash feet. We're going to reserve that task to the Gentiles. They can do that. So this was a job for a servant, but not just any servant, but the lowest of servants in the Jewish mindset. And yet, Jesus laid aside his expectations about his identity, his ability, his prerogatives, his entitlements, and he served other people. But actually, there's more. What's absolutely surprising and will blow away not just their expectations, but our expectations about his identity is the text says when he knew that he was come from God and going back to God, he picked up a towel and he washed feet. Did you get the relationship between those sentences? When he knew, he served If we were writing this, we might be tempted to say, now, although Jesus was high and lifted up and God, he washed feet. But it doesn't. It says, when he knew this, because he was God, he washed feet. Did you realize that that blows all of our expectations out of the water, but in a wonderful way? We often think, That when I come to God and I feel like I've been far away, or my feet are definitely in need of washing, my soul is in need of washing, that I have to really pray a long time, that I really have to get God's ear and bend it. I have to twist his arm, and then, yes, he'll relent, and he will meet me and wash me. But this passage says, this is what's in the very heart of God to do. This is what he's inclined to do. When he knew he came from God, he washed. He, Jesus, here transforms the expectations about his identity. Secondly, Jesus embraced this mission, and it was a painful and difficult mission. Washing feet in this culture was very familiar, like I said. Uh, Why? Because you had long walks, no cars, And you had dirty roads, dust everywhere, I guess no sidewalks, and open shoes, sandals. 
And so it was a normal part of life. And so if you were going to a feast or a party like the one we see here, uh, you would take a bath before you, uh, before you left the house. And then when you got to the other person's house, they would have a lowly servant and some water at the door, not at the meal, at the door. And they would wash your feet and you'd go in for the party. That was kind of, that was du jour. But we, really, we don't really see this today in our culture, Right? I mean, anybody have someone else wash their feet literally this week? And so we kind of romanticize this, right? We sing songs about having a servant's heart. He just washed feet. It's kind of church language. So when we think about these feet, here's what we need to think about. We need to think about laundry after summer camp. Have you ever been to summer camp? You're middle schooler, you're high schooler, and you get the suitcase home, and you flip it open, and it just assaults your nose with lake water-infused socks and shoes. It's terrible. And Jesus got on his hands and knees, and he put his fingers between 120 toes, and he cleaned the grit and the grime from their feet. So we may not be cleaning someone's toes. But you know where you see this kind of serving? You see it in the day after day, watching and bathing and feeding of a caregiver. You'll see it in the employee who, when reprimanded, perhaps unfairly, bites his tongue and protects his colleagues and takes one for the team. He serves them. You'll see it in the day and night attention of a bone-tired parent who once again gets up with the children. If you arrived early today, you would have seen it here where men and women were engaged in unstacking and setting up the chairs you're sitting on again. And they well, men and women upstairs early preparing coffee and pastries for you to enjoy. You see this kind of serving in the patient prayers and kind words of a loved one for someone who reciprocates very little. You see it. You see it all over. Jesus embraced a difficult mission and he's calling us to do the same. Jesus, thirdly, focused his abilities on the need. What is his example like? He took all of his divine abilities and love and might and he channeled them into meeting the needs of others. So around our house, we have a little uh, phrase that we use with our children. We're trying to teach them. We're trying our best. And we'll say that maturity looks like this. Maturity means moving toward people and problems in love and wisdom. In fact, if I said, what does maturity look like? You might hear, moving toward people and problems and love and wisdom. But I do, as old as it gets to hear that, I do want our kids to know that. I want them to walk into a room and not think, oh, I don't want to go in there. There's stuff to pick up. I'm going to go play video games. Where's the people and where are the problems? You don't move away, you move toward it. And you don't do it in a way that's unthinking and uncaring. You move toward people in problems in love and wisdom. 
And if our kids grow up, and that's a big part of their lives, I think they'll be mature adults in many ways. I want that for myself. And Jesus here, he is the full-grown man. He is the epitome of maturity. He's the second Adam, and where the first Adam in the Garden of Eden failed, Jesus more than achieves. And he sets that example, and he moves toward the problem and toward people in love and wisdom. And he says, when you do that, you find happiness. That's his example. And it should be ours as well. Fourthly, Jesus served whom? Even those who opposed him. Did you get that? Whose feet did he wash? He washed the disciples. Which disciples? All 12 of them. The 10 that in a few hours would run away and abandon Jesus. And even Peter, who would deny Jesus three times. And yes, would you believe it? He even washed the feet of Judas. Knowing that Judas had already begun plans to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He showed, Jesus showed massively undeserved kindness. And so must we. We must serve and love not just those who we think are worthy, deserving, attractive, showing potential, but serving even those who oppose us. And there's something in us, right, that we kind of like this. You know, we, we, we want to live our lives for something greater than ourselves. This is a cause worthy of laying down our life for. Let's lean into this, right? Yeah, this is for the cause. There's a mission in life. Let's join the mission. And there's something energizing and rousing. And, you know, we want to give back, right? That's the phrase today. Or pay it forward. But when the rubber meets the road... And the cost of serving starts to bite into our time and our convenience. You know what we find? We find that we are really self-protective, aren't we? And self-motivated. And so we've learned the why. Why should we follow Jesus' advice to find happiness by following his example? We learned why, because he knows. He can tell us exactly this is where it's found. We've learned the what what does serving and what does following Jesus' example look like? We've looked at that. But now we get to the, to the real heart of the question, don't we? The real question is, how? How in the world? You're calling me to do this and you're calling me to find happiness by doing this? No way. This is beyond me. How? How do we follow Jesus' example? And once again, Jesus, in the scriptures, gives us the answer. You see, it was in verses 12 through 17 where he said, all right, I've washed your feet, and now follow my example, and you'll be happy if you do. But, I'm sure this is not a difficult math problem for anyone, uh, verses 6 through 11 come before verses 12 to 17. It's obvious. And that is where the answer is. You see, before Jesus expected his disciples to follow his example, he first enabled them to follow his example. Can we read those verses together, verses 6 through 11? So in washing the feet, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, 
What I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. In these verses, we find this, that before exemplifying service for Jesus, we must first experience being served by Jesus. And there lies the how. We are enabled to serve Jesus, even in painful and demanding ways, when first we experience being served by Jesus. You see, verses 6 through 11 come before verses 12 to 17. But this is counterintuitive. This is not what we normally would think. It's certainly not what the great apostle Peter thought. When Jesus came to his feet, he was like, no, 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 no way. This isn't right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. His justice meter just spiked. He's like, this is not right. No way. No foot washing. You're the Lord. You're the master. I wash your feet, not the other way around. No foot washing for me. Thank you. But Jesus says this, if I don't wash you, you have no connection with me. Whoa. So whatever this washing thing is, it's significant, isn't it? Because he says, if you don't have it, we have nothing together. You have no part in me. It's startling. And Jesus can say that this is important, this washing, because this physical cleaning of physical dirt from the feet was a symbol of what he would do when he humbled himself in just a few hours on the cross to cleanse spiritually the dirt from our souls. But at first glance, this is so counterintuitive. We don't expect Jesus to say this. We expect him to say, we expect him to say, if you don't obey me perfectly, or if you don't do good to your fellow man, or if you don't work for justice and peace in the world, you have no part in me. But he doesn't. He says something different, something that flies against our expectations. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I really wish I could be a person of faith, but, you know, I I just can't. I've sought for God, and I just can't find him. He's just too far. It's too remote. I just don't get it. Some people say he's close. He's too far and too high and too distant and too lofty. In a supreme stroke of irony, Jesus shows us that the real reason that people, even good people, even religious people, don't find God is not that he's too high and too far. But as someone has said, the real reason that people don't find God is he's actually, he's too low and too close. He's at your feet. You see, we find God and we have a connection to him in a counterintuitive way. We don't find that connection in our high-flying deeds of piety or generosity or church participation or community service. We find God right at our feet when we humbly acknowledge our need of his cleansing, cleansing our faults and our failures 
And that's why many men and women don't find God, is they're not realizing that before we try to serve, we must first give up all attempts at self-reliance, self-cleansing, and self-significance and allow him to meet those needs for us. The way forward, the how, oh, it's counterintuitive, but it is absolutely essential if we're going to serve others. And here's why. Letting Jesus serve us first is so essential if we're going to serve and love others. There's a version of love today that masquerades as true love, and it says something like this. I love you. I need you. When I'm around you, I feel alive. I mean, this could be a a card, a greeting card, right? When I'm around you, I feel alive. You make me feel like an authentic individual. You fill me up. You deal with my emptiness. So what's wrong with that? What happens is that this isn't this love that I just articulated isn't a serving love, it's a taking love. It's kind of like tick on dog. Or truth be told, in most relationships it ends up being really tick on tick. So you fill me up, that means I drain you. But real love, Jesus love, the kind we see in his serving and his dying, is the kind that says this. I'll deny myself to fill your hunger. I will help you feel alive even though it costs me my life. I will allow my individuality to be unmade so that you can be a genuine person. And I'll let myself be emptied to fill you up. That is how Jesus serves us. And when he serves us in that way, then we find the strength and the capacity to serve others. Unless Jesus serves us this way, it's essential. If he, unless he does this way, then we may see hungry people around us and just we won't find it in ourselves to help them because we're hungry. If we're hungry-souled people, then instead of being generous, we'll be miserly, and there's no way we're giving up that last scrap of bread. So being served by Jesus is absolutely critical if we're going to serve others. If we're filled by Jesus, if we're washed by Jesus, if we're first served by Jesus, then, and only then, can we follow his example and serve others. And then we will find uncommon happiness. That's his promise to us. Would you let yourself be washed by the Savior? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we bring gladly our faults and our weaknesses, our sin and our grime, and we own it. It's ours. We've made the mess. We've dirtied ourselves in this, the dust of the world. And we ask you to cleanse us. 
I pray that in that cleansing we would find a new lease on life, not to pursue our own happiness, our own way, but through serving others. I pray that you would bring maximum happiness to each person in this room through Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.